As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of CPA Review and more. This was our special Facebook Live and Zoom webinar question and answers episode. We will be doing a special question and answers episode once a month, which will be the first Tuesday of each month. Our next Facebook Live question and answers uh, episode for the podcast series will be held on May 7th. That's, again, the first Tuesday of May. And will always be broadcast live via Facebook and Zoom webinar. The Zoom webinar where you can actually get interactive and ask your questions and answer some polls will only be available for the first 100 people to register via Zoom webinar. You can get the link for our next episode in the description of this podcast. If you haven't already, please feel free to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. So not only you, but all your friends and anyone you might know who has a interest in CPA review, finance, or accounting can definitely take advantage of the great quality content that Jaeger CPA Review has to offer through our podcast series. If there's a topic you'd like to hear on Jaeger CPA Review and more podcasts, we want to hear from you. Drop us a line at podcast at com and let us know what you want to hear on the show. We're always looking forward to hearing what our listeners have to say. Don't forget to stay tuned after our closing credits on here for a special added excerpt that we did not actually include on the webinar version that we thought was important for some of the listeners to know about. We've got your host, Phil, and we've also got Megan online with us this afternoon as well. Well, thank you, Rob. Rob didn't introduce himself. Rob is my sidekick here and uh, just a hell of a nice guy. Hi, Rob. Good to see you. All right. Today, we are doing a live podcast. Usually, we take those and we play them at a later date, but now we are live and I have a whole... By the way, I just want people to know, you know, People say, Phil, 
what do you do all the time? Do you read the FASBs? Do you read the SASs? And I say, no, I believe in good exercise. And exercise is important to taking the exam. Would you agree, Rob? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, behind me, by the way, uh, let's see if you can see this. Uh, behind me is my Stairmaster. Can you see that, everyone? Yes, yes. <laughs> All right. And by the way, I try to walk 15 miles every morning. All right. And then after I walk my 15 miles, I go and I I actually have a cash basis trial balance. Okay. And what I try to do is convert it to accrual basis. Right. And we will discuss this today, how to convert from cash to accrual. And then, if that's not enough, if it doesn't balance, okay, I write to my contact at the ICPA and we confer on this because, remember, it must be in balance, according to the founder of accounting, all right, Mr. Pacioli. Pacioli? All right. Pacioli. What? what was that, Megan? Lucia. <laughs> Lucia Pacioli, whatever his name is, okay? Uh, he's it's always been my He's so in Wygant. But anyway, all right. Let's take our first question that I have in front of me. And by the way, Megan, just for your own information purposes, Megan is our chief operating officer for Yeager CPA Review and worked at KPMG. So she has big four experience. And I unfortunately do not have big four experience. I did work for a CPA firm, but back then they were somewhere in the final 20 or 25, all right? Today, the remaining big CPA firms are called the final four like the basketball. All right, so here's our first question, all right? Here it goes. This is from, should we read the names? Should I read the names? All right, R. Cherokee, I hope I'm pronouncing it. And this was a question that says, I take the exam April 15th. If I don't pass, can I take it again in June? All right, Megan, can you handle that question? The answer is no, you can't take it again in June. So there are four testing windows each year, quarter one, quarter two. There used to be actually um, two months of the year, and then there was an off month. Now it extends 10 days into that third month. So this testing window, Q2 2019, is April 1st through June 10th. June 10th is my birthday, so it's a special day. And and then if you get a score back... Yeah, happy birthday, Megan. Oh, thank you. Yes. If you get a score back during that window, no matter when it's released, you won't be able to retake a failed section until the next quarter. So Q3 2019 is from July 1st through September 10th. So that's kind of, and you can take all four sections during a single testing window, but you can't retake the same section twice. Next question from Don G. All right. I guess you're taking the question. You're taking the question, right? I'm taking the question. You're taking the exam the second quarter, 2019, April through June. And you want to know, what are the most important formulas to memorize for the BC exam for 2019? Now, before I give you those formulas, all right, they can also ask you these formulas on financial accounting. Is that correct, Megan? Yep, that's correct. All right. Now, here's some of them. I'm not going to read every one. But here's one. Make sure you know how to calculate the dividend payout ratio. All right. And here is the numerator, dividend payout ratio. It is cash dividend per share, common share, divided by the basic earnings per share. And I'll talk about that a little later about difference between basic and diluted. All right. You now have to know the current ratio. All right. That's a measure of your working capital. The numerator is current assets. The denominator is current liabilities. And then we have the acid test ratio, which even though the current ratio is a measure of liquidity, 
this is a more immediate measure of liquidity, the quick ratio, and that's, once again, known as the asset test, and the numerator, cash plus cash equivalents plus marketable securities plus net accounts receivable, and you divide that by your current liabilities. Now, in the numerator, notice I'm doing immediate cash, which is cash, cash equivalents, marketable securities that can easily be converted to cash, and also your net accounts receivable. Do not include, like with the current ratio, we do current assets divided by current liabilities. So in the current ratio, you would have, yes, net accounts receivable, but you could also have prepaid expenses, all right? You could have office supplies. Those are all current assets, all right? And did I say inventory? I think I did, all right? But remember, you do not include those items like inventory, prepaid assets, all right? And also, um, another one is office supplies, something like that, all right? Only the most immediate cash equivalents and divide that by the current liabilities, total current liabilities, all right? And then we have all right, debt to equity ratio, all right, this is considered a debt utilization ratio, and it also tests your solvency, all right, and the debt to equity is total liabilities, current and non-current, divided by the total stockholders' equity, all right, and this basically shows you, all right, in relation to your total equity in the company, how much of that total equity is percentagely owned by your creditors, Okay. I think that's what it says. Any comments on that, Megan? Yeah, so I so just on a, on a grand scale, there's two things I want to talk about about um, ratios. One is that if you have taken the AICPA practice sample test, they actually have an exhibit that shows you these ratios because I know not everybody's an auditory learner, so it would be nice to have this in front of you so you can see it. And so if you go to the sample test, AICPA.org, you can go to the third testlet, where it starts giving the task-based simulations. And then you'll see the analytics definitions exhibit. It will list about 20 or so ratios, analytic ratios that you'd need to know for the exam. And with that, we get asked a lot of the time, do you need to memorize these ratios? And absolutely you do need to memorize these ratios. Megan, and your audio just dropped off a little bit. You're did right. it drop off a little bit? Well, let me repeat that last phrase. You do absolutely need to memorize these ratios. And, and the key is that when you're getting questions on them, you're not most likely going to get X, Y equals Z. You have to solve for some number. You have to understand how the accounts interact within the ratio. If you need to change one of the variables, what does it do to net income? All of those things would be fair game for the CPA exam. It's not just algebra class. You have to know these ratios inside and out and what changes when you adjust something within the ratio. Now, uh, we have the ratios in our financial accounting book. All right, for those who are our students, we have all those common ratios on 1B, chapter one, B as in boy, dash 14, and we have all those ratios. Now, I'm just going to read what they are without giving the definitions, all right? Make sure you know times interest earned, all right? Times interest earned. Also, make sure you know the different activity asset utilization ratios, like receivable turnover, all right? And then once you get the turnover, and by the way, that's net credit sales over average accounts receivable net. 
That's beginning plus ending, net receivables, all right, over two. And once you get that ratio, it gives you a number of times you actually are collecting your receivables, all right? If you take those ratio and divide into 365 days, it tells you how many days it takes to collect your receivables. And of course, we have the inventory turnover. And the numerator is cost of goods sold over average inventory. Beginning plus end divided by two. There's a trick for that one too. For anything with a turnover, you take the name that's given in turnover, turn it over, that becomes the denominator, and then you'll remember that ratio when you get to it. So anything time there's a turnover, put that, whatever that phrase is, if it's inventory, turn it over, make that the denominator. Okay, and once you get that inventory turnover, it just gives you how many times. If you want to know how many times you're selling your inventory, take the terminal turnover as your denominator, and the numerator is 365 days, all right? And that is called, when you get the number of days that it takes to sell your inventory, that's called days in inventory. And then, of course, here's another one. These are market ratios, all right? One is the price-earnings ratio, all right? Now, if you say what it is, it'll tell you what you do, all right? The price is the market price, all right? The earnings are earnings per share. And by the way, that's basic earnings per share, right? Okay, so let me repeat that. Price earnings ratio is market price over basic earnings per share. Now, what does that tell you? That tells you whether your stock is overpriced or not. So the higher the ratio, the more overpriced your stock is as far as what that ratio means. And then there's a ratio where it, if you liquidate the corporation, one of the liquidation ratios is called book value per share. And that normally deals with the book value per share of common stock. Now, what is your numerator? The numerator is your total stockholders equity that the common stockholder will get in the event of liquidation, all right? So what you do is this. You take the net income, you subtract any preferred dividends paid, okay? All right, now, that includes all dividends and arrears, not just one year as we see in earnings per share. So you take the net income, subtract from that, all right, all dividends and arrears you owe, because remember, in the event of liquidation, you would have to pay, all right, dividends and arrears to who? All right, stockholders, common and preferred. Now, once you subtract those dividends and arrears from the net income, all right, that gives you the earnings that's actually available to go to the common stockholders. Now, the denominator is this, all right? It is the number of shares of stock outstanding. And because it's usually common stock, that would be the number of shares of common stock outstanding, okay? All right, and don't worry, by the way, don't worry about weighted average number of shares. This is just the number of shares outstanding at the end of the year, because that's when you're doing this ratio. So don't worry about weighted average. Weighted average deals with earnings per share, all right? So remember, the number of shares outstanding, all right, is the number of common shares outstanding, and that will give you a value per share. Now, also one other thing, all right? When you're dividing by the number of shares outstanding, all right, what you're doing is this, all right? You're dividing by the total outstanding shares of common stock. So if there's any shares in the treasury, exclude those because those are not outstanding. They're issued 
but not outstanding. And one more thing, in the event of liquidation, all right, what do the common stockholders get, which is your numerator, all right? Well, in the event of liquidation, the common stockholders are always entitled to their par value. They're also entitled to the additional paid in capital excessive par for common stock, all right? And also, they're also entitled to the additional paid in capital from preferred stock, all right? Because in the event of liquidation, preferred stockholders only get their par value, the legal value. So if you have APIC and excessive par for common stock and preferred stock, all right, you want to add that to your numerator. And also don't forget the par value of the common stock. All right, now, one other thing, all right, the retained earnings. Now you have retained earnings, all right? And most cases, retained earnings all goes to the common stockholders. However, all right, sometimes they have what we call liquidation premiums, which means that in the event of liquidation, all right, the par value stockholders will get the par value plus a liquidation premium per share, all right? The liquidation premium generally goes to the preferred stockholders. Now, after you subtract that out, all right, from the retained earnings, the balance of the retained earnings goes to the common stockholders. All right, now that was a mouthful. But, all right, my suggestion would be, whether it's our book or hopefully the book you're using, all right, practice the book value per share. Just go over some questions, okay? Now, the next question is from Darcy. And Darcy says, in the new lease regulations, all right, when does asset ownership transfer and the lessee begins to depreciate the asset? Is it now more dependent on the specific contract wording or the question wording on the CPA exam? All right, or does a finance lessee sales type lease to lessor, all right, situation imply ownership transfer similar to previous regulations when a capital lease would consider? All right, well, that's a mouthful, but let me just summarize. All right, now, they're probably going to ask you the journal entries for a finance lease and a sales type lease because, all right, normally, if a lessee meets certain requirements, very similar to the old owns, all right, and I'm not going to get into those now, but if they meet the requirements or one of those, the lessee meets one of them, all right, then the lessee treats it as a finance lease, and in most cases, the lessor treats it as a sales type lease. Now, you have to look at those separately, all right? Now, the lessor treats it as though they're selling it to the lessee. Now, what is the lessor selling? They're selling inventory, okay? That's what it is to them. It's a sale. So all they're doing on the lessor's book is taking out the inventory and converting it to cost of goods sold. And then, of course, it's a sale. They have revenue from the sales. Now, when that asset transfers over to the lessee in a finance lease, the theory that we use is this. All that the lessee is getting is the right to use that asset. They're really not getting that piece of equipment. They're getting a right of use of an asset. So therefore, right of use of asset, and by the way, that's the entry that's made by the lessee. They debit right of use asset, and they credit lease liability. And they do that at the present value of the minimum lease payments using a rate of return. No longer the lesser of the implicit rate or the incremental rate. Now, that right of use asset, because it's really a right, just a right, 
It's sort of like an intangible asset in a way. All right. So what do we do? We amortize that right of use asset on lessees, books, all right, for a finance lease. And by the way, that right of use asset is amortized over the life of the lease. All right. And when the lessee does that, they debit amortization expense and they credit right of use asset. Now, that's important you know that. So really, in essence, all right, no one is recording depreciation. Why? The lessor is treating it as though they sold it. Inventory is being sold. The lessee treats it as thus they're using this asset. So they're just recording an intangible asset, not like a computer equipment, a fixed asset. No depreciation. Now, at the end of the lease, all right, the lessee has an option here. The lessee can return the asset to the lessor, or the lessee can actually buy it out, maybe at a bargain purchase option. Now, if the lessee buys it out, then the buyout to the lessee after the lease is over, all right, will, they'll record like a computer. So now they'll record a fixed asset to the lessee, and they'll depreciate that computer, all right, normally over its normal economic life, all right. Now, what should I know? I should know the journal entries, all right, for a lessee finance lease, if it meets the requirements, one of the requirements, and the lessor sales type. Now, as far as also, the lessee, if he treats it as an operating lease, because they don't meet any of the requirements to be a finance lease, all right, the lessor will also treat it as a operating lease, all right? So be familiar with the journal entries. We have them in our book. We also have some good multiple choice. The other area I would know on leases, all right, would be sale and leaseback. And the thing you have to remember is this, and you gotta know the journal entries, all right? And also, all right, you have to know when you have a lease, a sale and leaseback, it's only a sale and leaseback if the leaseback is an operating leaseback, all right? Because think about it, sale and leaseback. Well, if I sell something, all right, to a buyer, all right, and the buyer now leases it back to the seller, all right, what's happening here? The seller treating it as an operating lease, all right, operating leaseback, that's considered a sale and leaseback, all right? But if the seller, all right, actually releases it at a uh, finance lease, it's not considered a sale and leaseback, it's just a sale. And I would know the journal entries for sale and leaseback, all right, because there's two amortization tables, all right? There's tables to amortize the actual loan, all right? And two, all right, there is tables to actually amortize the right of use asset or, all right, the amortization of what makes up the lease expense, all right, when it's an operating leaseback. Because lease expense to the lessee, all right, is really what they're doing is they're paying a monthly or yearly lease payment, but also remember, the lease, they're financing in a way. They're still borrowing the money to pay off the lease. And they're going to have to do amortization of right of use assets. So the lease expense in a sale and leaseback, all right, consists of this. It's the interest on the loan. And two, it's the amortization of the right of use asset. That's what makes up the total lease expense. Make sure you know that amortization table. And last thing, all right. Make sure you know how to treat some different types of costs, executory costs and indirect lease costs, all right? Make sure you know how to do that. And third, the last thing, okay? 
make sure you look at the blueprints. Now, one of the blueprints, all right, in leases, and this is usually the typical type they're telling you could be a task-based simulation. They want you to take a lease and interpret the lease, all right? Because interpreting a lease means you know what the requirements are to see if that is a, uh, a finance lease to the lessee. That's what they're going to do. They'll give you documents. They might give you the lease, all right? So they sell you specifically in the blueprints, all right? What they want you to do as far as interpreting leases, and they tell you what else they expect you to know. And those interpretation questions, no matter what topic it is, would make for a good task-based simulation. And one last thing, and then I'll, you know, go to the next question. All right. If you're taking a course that has not mentioned to you that you must know the blueprints, all right, because that's what they test on, the tasks, the maps, the blueprints, all right. Now, we integrate the blueprints in our notes, all right, and we've had a competitor say, well, we also use the blueprints. Well, there's a difference here. Using the blueprints and showing them to you is not the same as integrating the blueprints within the text. We integrate them so that we give you the blueprint and we give you the material that deals with that blueprint. Now, if they are not mentioning to you the blueprints, all right, you better think twice about what this course is doing for you. And also, you need to look at the blueprints at a minimum. And what you do is you go to AICPA.org website and then in the search button, all right, type in blueprints. All right, it'll take you the blueprints, which you must know for the subject you're testing. By the way, you have all four subjects, but obviously if you're just doing financial, just look at the blueprints starting in July 1st of 2000, is it 19, Megan? Yeah, right. yeah. so they, they have two right now that are posted on the AICPA. So if you're testing in quarter two before June 10th, there's one set of blueprints, and then there's some fairly minor changes that they'll be starting to test July 1st. So if, if you're studying early for something in July, make sure you're using the newest version of the blueprints. They update them every six months or so, but that's, that's our recommendation. Yeah, I mean, I've listened to different uh, courses or competitors. That's something anybody should do if they have a business. Always know what your competitors are doing. But, all right, it really bugs me when I hear someone saying that, all right, you don't have to know the blueprints. They're still testing on the old content specification. That is absolutely false. And I'll tell you how I know that's false. All right. I am considered an approved course provider. And as an approved course provider, we meet with the ASCPA examination division twice a year. And all they say to us is, make sure you get that word out. And by the way, there's still a fairly good, good percentage of people that don't know about the blueprints. It's amazing. But they say, you got to tell the people. They have to know what's in the blueprints. And if they do, they will have a better chance of passing versus not looking at the blueprints. And, okay? and from my perspective, the blueprints should be your primary study tool. So when you first sit down to study your brand new CPA candidate, go to the AICPA.org, utilize these free resources. You download them, you get a nice fresh copy from the AICPA. It's a lot of pages, so maybe print it on a printer at school or at work or something like that, but have a nice hard copy of the blueprint from the AICPA. 
And then as you go through material, you can use that as kind of a little check guide. You, you get through one of the representative tasks, check it off, you feel confident in it. Then when you go through your review, you have a guideline for what you should be studying. Because I can say from personal experience, looking at say the topic of inventory, that's all I was given when I was studying for the exam. You need to know inventory. I don't know what about inventory I need to know. Do I need to know LIFO layers? Do I, like what, what depth do I need to know? And the AICPA finally, as a progression of the industry, has said these are the exact tasks that you'd be expected to know as a CPA in the first and second year of your career. They've done a practice analysis on what topics do practitioners need to know in an early stage in their career. So that's what they're testing. And this is the way to find out exactly explicitly what they will test you on. So don't take, like, don't take that for granted. Not everybody who's a CPA had that and you do, and it's free. So go get it. <laughs> and also the nice thing about the blueprints, if you look at the top bar, what would you call that across the top? It's yeah, the testing it as multiple choice or Sims. Oh yeah. So, so there's, Another advancement when they developed the blueprints, they actually use Bloom's taxonomy of learning. So there's different levels of learning. And so there's a remember and understanding level, there's an application level, analysis level, and evaluation level. And when they tell you what task you need to do, they'll actually tell it to you at the level that you need to know it. So for audit, since this is an auditing, there's an auditing section of the exam, and this is a credential that is intended for people going into the audit profession. They want you to know that at the evaluation level, which is in Bloom's taxonomy, the highest level. So when you go through these representative tasks, you'll see which level they're testing the evaluation um, and those tasks that are associated with that. And so those are very low-hanging fruit for task-based simulations. They want you to know it at an extremely deep level. So expect to see those as task-based simulation. Um, evaluations only tested on the audit exam. So the ones that would most likely be on task-based simulations for the other parts of the exam would be the ones that are at that one step lower. So it's the analysis level, which is kind of what we were talking about with ratios. You, you may be able to remember the ratio and understand it, that would be like on a multiple choice question, but then you're gonna need to do more than just remember it. You have to apply it. You're given the variables and you have to calculate it. We actually have to do the third level of Bloom's taxonomy where you have to analyze it and you have to look at the financial statements and you have to say, if this is the benchmark for the industry and here's your financial statement, you apply, you get all the numbers from the financial statement, you calculate the ratio, and then you have to take it to that third analysis level and say, is this good for the industry and the benchmarks that I'm given? Is this going to impact if I change net income or I change the cost of goods sold, what does that do to these ratios and how I relate to the industry? That's the level of knowledge you have to know about these things to be successful on the exam. And when you look at the blueprint, tying it back to the blueprint, you'll get to see if they're only testing it at a remember and understanding level, you don't need to know the intimate details about some of this stuff. So for instance, if you're looking at the IT topic in BEC, a lot of that is at remembering and understanding level. They want you to be conversational. So as a first and second year associate at a big four accounting firm and you go into an audit meeting, you can actually interpret what people are saying to you, take the notes, go back to test work and have the information you need. But if you're doing something 
that's more um, higher level on your audit engagement, that's, those are the tasks that they're identifying in the blueprint that are going to be tested at that higher level. And you'll likely see those in your career too. Good points. Very good points on the, I mean, what it comes down to look at the blueprints. Okay. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. Because I'm going to tell you some of these courses, I mean, we, some of us go to the same meeting and I sometimes wonder what are they doing at that meeting? Are they, are they, they're all sitting there very impressively typing, typing. And I just sit there and listen, you know, and I think to myself, Am I dumb or, you know, but obviously I'm not the dumb one. They're the ones who are typing away and I listen and I can come back and tell the people what you need to know. You know, you don't have to be a brain surgeon to go to these meetings. Uh, The next thing is, um, let me just address, I'm going to skip here. Uh, There's a regulation question and the person saying I'm giving, taking reg for the third time. I got 70 and 74, my previous attempts. I don't know which one came first. Um, would be grateful. You have some exam tips. What areas to focus more and main points to remember? All right. Well, um, most people go to college and they maybe have one semester of taxation. And that might be a course on individuals or it might be a course on individuals, but also touches partnerships, corporation tax, uh, also uh, professional responsibilities. Now, if you didn't have, all right, two semesters of a quality course, okay, at school, then this is what you got to do. What areas will actually cause me to fail if I don't know them? Well, if you look at diagnostic reports, and by the way, I always look at them, all right, I always encourage a student to call me, whether they're in their class or not. You don't have to be in my class. You can still call me, all right? And I'll go over with you and explain that diagnostic. Now, sometimes... The diagnostic is very helpful because it tells you you're weaker in one part than other candidates. And that's the only area you're weaker on. Now, one of the areas when it's usually one part, you're in the 70s, close to passing. Well, entities, because most people have not had courses in partnership, corporation taxation, all right, which includes C-corps, S-corps. And also, all right, if you score weaker on professional responsibilities, they're certainly not going to have you be an accountant in the profession when you're not ethical. All right. That makes sense. Right. And that probably is also true because there's professional responsibilities also in auditing, but that's more on the independence issues. All right. Where the professional legal responsibilities and regulation deal with your responsibilities as a tax practitioner talks a lot about circular 230, which is responsibilities of a tax practitioner And also, what you must do when you prepare a tax return, all right? In other words, you have to make reasonable inquiries, all right? You're not required to audit the return, the tax return. But if something is not there that was there last year, you have to ask the client. Make reasonable inquiries. So that's what they're going over. And also, in the regulation part, they usually ask you what the different appeal rights you have, all right? There's different letters. In other words, you are audited. They come in and they audit and they say, we're going to disallow this deduction. We're going to disallow that deduction. Now, they'll then send you a report telling you, the IRS will tell you, what deductions they're not allowing. Now, you have to know what the 30-day letter is, all right, the 90-day letter, all right, know what your rights are as far as appealing, all right, and also... Make sure you know 
what the statute of limitations are. In other words, how long can the IRS audit you with normal situations? I'm not talking about fraud, because when it comes to the statute of limitations on fraud, there is no statute of limitations. They can go after you forever. Technical difficulties. All right, Phil's, Phil's video, are you back on now, Phil? I'm back on. Yep. Okay, good. All right, so I, let me just go back. Uh, uh, we were talking about uh, the different, I guess, the statute of limitations. Yeah, right, statute what of, else? I think the last I heard was statute of limitations when there's a fraudulent situation. And they but, really can go after you indefinitely because you should, you know, be held accountable for your actions if you've committed fraud. And I'll tell you this. As far as going into any part of the exam, make sure that you have some type of plan as far as how much time you're going to spend. Did it go out again? All right. We have to know how much time. Now, this is just a rule of thumb. All right. There is four hours to the exam. Based on my analysis, I have figured out that you can't spend more than a minute and a half on each Tesla to multiple choice. There's two Teslas no more than a minute and a half on each multiple choice questions. Also, there's, what is it, eight simulations, Megan, generally? Yeah, it depends on the, on the exam, but I'll pull up the breakdown. But it's here. normally eight simulations. And if you work out the time, you can't spend more than 15 minutes on each simulation. Now, what does that mean you do in 15 minutes? You read the requirements of the question. You read the information. And I think you read the requirements, read the information, and then start working on the answers. Now, do you have to get every answer correct? No. I, this is my opinion. If you answer more than half, about 60% of the responses, and you get them correct, then you'll probably have a real good chance of passing. But do not leave out any simulations, because when you leave it out, they have no idea if you have any knowledge of that subject. And they'll just automatically give you a zero score on that. So you got to do some of each simulation. Very important, right? You got to show them you know what you're doing. And the only way you can show them you know what you're doing, to some extent, is by doing some of each simulation. All right? So entities, very important. Property transactions. Um, the other thing is, I would say once again, Make sure you know the new Individual Tax Act, you know, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, the Trump Tax Act, all right? That's actually, that's actually went into effect as far as the testing of it in January of 2019. So that's an area. But I'll tell you, if you don't do well in entities, they'll generally not pass you, all right? And also property, because they like to ask like-kind exchanges. And here's another one. Make sure you know wash sales. That's in property. Because they'll give you a simulation, and they're not going to tell you it's a wash sale. You have to know and be able to identify it. All right? So anyway, that's the points. All right, the next one. Megan, you can answer this. Yeah. How are the marks allotted? You said this was an English expression. How are marks allotted to questions on the exam? Yeah, so if you, again, it goes back to the blueprint, so it's going to be the easiest place to look at this, but I'll kind of go over it quickly. So if you say you're taking multi the um, audit exam and you want to take a look at how it's weighted, so every exam on um, the CPA exam 
will have about 50% for multiple choice questions. And then BEC is the only oddball, but the rest, it would be 50% for task-based simulations. And then BEC has 35% for the task-based simulations and then 15% for the written communication. And then within those percentages, the 50% that's multiple choice, you can go to the blueprint section where it actually talks about the summary of the blueprint for that area and it'll tell you the weight of it. So for ethics, professional responsibilities, and general principles for audit, that's 15 to 25%. And so then if you have that weight and you kind of want to get a sense of how many questions you can expect, then go back to the number of questions in auditing. There's 72. Multiply it by that weight, you'll get the number of questions you can expect to see. I will caution you, though, especially for BEC and IT or some of the areas that have had a lot of change, for instance, analytics, they'll have most likely a few more questions about those topic areas that are being pre-tested. So if you felt like you had a ton of IT questions on BEC, it's fairly likely that the percentage that you got actually was greater than the percentage that they're actually calculating into your score. And you can kind of tell that when you see a large, large number of questions and you just feel, go come out of the exam and you feel a little overwhelmed by the number. And um, we saw this a lot with government accounting for a period of time um, when they were doing a lot of the changes for government accounting. So just know that there are pretest questions on the exam and um, try not to read too much into it. Um, do the best you can on each question and move on. Now, uh, here's a question. And by the way, I have a, a question on business law. You want to read that? Uh... Sure. Uh, so the question is, could you explain the three conditions related to transferring receivables with secure borrowings? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, are they talking about three requirements for that? Three conditions not... related to. Are they talking about, I don't know if they're talking about creation of a secure transaction. I don't know if they're talking about attachment. All right. But make sure, you're asking me this question, okay? If you're not using the blueprint, all right, then go see if this is one of the questions or one of the tasks on the blueprint. Is this person writing back? All right? Can someone clarify that if you could, the person who wrote it in? I'm not sure it's what you're asking. anonymous attendee as well. All right, anonymous, all right. Anonymous, if you can be a little clearer what your question is. I'm not sure what requirements I mean, are you talking about secured transactions in business law? All right. There's three requirements to have attachment. And attachment is just another term for the creation of the security, secured transaction. That's what we mean by attachment, if that's what your question is. If you could write back, I'd appreciate a little clarification on that. I'm not sure. And if you don't want to write back, okay, all right, you can reach me. I'll give you my phone number. All right. I'm in Maryland. You can reach me at area code 301-874-4900. That's 301-874-4900. And I'm at extension 5, okay? And I'm on Eastern Time, Eastern Daylight Savings Time. But anyway, call me. I won't bite you, even though you're taking another course. Hey, I'll be happy to answer your question. Now, it says here, is it simple to switch from another CPA review course to Jaeger? Yeah, you know. Just enroll. <laughs> okay, that's really it. But I will be studying for the exams first and second quarter of 2020. Okay, do you have any recommendations of what I can do in the meantime while taking a full course load of required college courses to be CPA eligible? Well, I'll tell you what I would do. 
All right, if you're talking about the 150 hours, the extra 30 credits or whatever, try to take those in subjects that maybe you didn't get if you had a bachelor's degree. For example, all right, if you're gonna take extra courses, take advanced auditing, all right? That would help you, because most schools, it's just auditing one, all right? It's not, it's basic, very basic, all right? And then you might wanna take uh, taxation too, advanced taxation. That's where they cover more of the entities, uh, the partnerships, and by the way, all right, the blueprints for regulation for taxes, it is spelled out so well, all right, that they tell you what they're going to ask on corporations, whether it's liquidating, non-liquidating distributions, whether it's the C-corps, S-corps, partnerships, all right? Now, I'm not throwing this at you to impress you. You know, I always tell people, if you taught this as much as I did, all right, you could learn this too, all right? But you're not competing against me. You're competing against people who are not teaching this material, all right? So never compare yourself. Don't compare yourself to me and don't compare yourself to anybody. Everyone is different. You're going to be better at certain subjects than other people, and it works both ways. But if you're going to study with someone, make sure the arrangement is such that maybe they're better versed in certain areas than you are, and you can learn from them, and you can tell them what you know that they might not be really versed in. So that's the way studying with someone else works well. All right, now, what's the other? I said advanced auditing, um, advanced taxation. You might want to take a course on governmental and not-for-profit. You know? Hey, best way, because I, you know, when I took, when I was in school, we had to take advanced accounting, which was business combinations, consolidations, the equity method. And also, we had like one chapter, one, two chapters on governmental and not-for-profit. All right? It wasn't enough to really know it. So if you can take a course in governmental and not-for-profit, that's a good extra course. Now, these are a little bit harder than taking a course, say, in basket weaving, all right? Or, you know, a drama class. You know, a lot of people, hey, people told me University of Miami, all right, they actually took a course in uh, water skiing, all right? That's what they took. Because I don't know what Miami, Miami, I don't know what Florida's requirements are, but back then, you can take a course in basket weaving. It's amazing. All right. Is that question? Is the clarification? Yeah, on? there's clarification. Okay. What's so the- secured borrowings, three conditions, transferred assets, isolated for seller. Factory ha- uh, sorry, factor has rights to privilege or sell and oh, seller. Pledge or sell. maintain control through any repurchase agreements. Unsure about the meanings of these. Well, uh, I think, what you're talking about is maybe, all right, in order to have a secured transaction, there has to be attachment, all right? And until you have all three requirements met, you can't have a secured transaction. Now, that would be, all right, here's the three requirements for attachment, the creation of the secured transaction, all right? I call it DR, I call that doctor, DR, A is in Apple, V is in Victor, Dr. A.V., all right. The first one says the debtor has rights to the collateral. That's the first thing. All right. The debtor has to have rights to the collateral. And generally, the debtor has rights to the collateral when they take possession of the collateral. That's, when, that's really the last step of attachment. Also, there has to be an agreement between the debtor and the creditor. All right. And normally, that agreement has to be in writing. 
and it's called the security agreement. It has to be signed by the debtor only. And also, remember this, it has to be in writing if, all right, the creditor does not have possession of the collateral, all right? All right, now normally, who has possession of the collateral? The debtor, but, all right, if the debtor doesn't have possession of the collateral, but the creditor has, all right, then the security agreement can be oral. It doesn't have to be in writing. Only has to be in writing when the debtor has possession of the collateral. And also, all right, V and Dr. A.V. is, all right, the creditor must give value to the debtor. What does that mean? The creditor must extend credit, all right, for the debtor to buy the collateral. So as soon as all three are met, you have a secure transaction attachment. Now, <clears throat> to answer your question here, I think I'm answering it. Um, remember, the security agreement has to be in writing of what? What did I say? Anybody remember? It has to be in writing if who has possession of the collateral? All right, the creditor has possession of the collateral. I'm sorry, if the creditor has possession of the collateral, does the security agreement have to be in writing? No, but if the debtor has possession of the collateral, the debtor must sign the security agreement. And basically, you just have to identify what the collateral is, all right? Now, I don't know if I answered your question or not, all right? And also, if you're talking about factoring, all right, there isn't a blueprint asking you to know about factoring. That's not on the exam, all right? But what I just quoted to you, which was the rules of attachment, that is one of the blueprints, okay? So go to the blueprints on business law, all right? It tells you every subject you have to know, all right? In fact, it doesn't cover every section of business law because they don't expect you to know it. But you have to know secure transactions, all right? Uh, the other thing is basic rules on contracts, common law contracts, all right? And also the Uniform Commercial Code, the UCC, all right? Now, I can't memorize every blueprint because I, you don't have to memorize them, but you have to look at the blueprint and say to yourself, all right, they're asking me, what are the requirements to have a valid contract, you know? Um, you have to have a meeting of the minds, all right? You can't have a contract with a crazy person, all right? Because that's an agreement with one less mind, isn't it? All right? But you have to have a lawful subject matter, all right? There has to be an offer and acceptance, all right? So these are the elements of a valid contract, all right? And just remember, because a contract is valid, doesn't mean you can enforce it against someone if they breach the contract. So what do we call the rule when you try and determine if this contract is enforceable in a court of law? Well, usually that's the statute of frauds, which says that some contracts have to be in writing to be enforced against the other party if you sue them, all right? If you have a valid contract, that's great. But if the other party breaches, you got to be able to enforce that contract because if that person breaches, all right, you go to court, the judge doesn't throw it out and say, you know, you had a valid contract. But because of the statute of frauds, all right, certain contracts have to be in writing, like real estate contracts. If the contract was not signed, real estate, by the person you're charging, normally it's the defendant, all right, then even though you may have a valid contract, all right, if it's a real estate contract and it's not in writing, you cannot enforce it against the person you are suing unless they signed it, okay? All right, that's probably more than I wanted to say. All right, 
And let me just mention a few other things. One more question. We have another question. Another Uh, question. So Jolene, her question on Facebook, do you have any day of exam advice? I scheduled for the evening session, hoping my nerves would be settled by then. So just day of exam advice. Day of exam advice. All right. Well, first of all, I wouldn't go crazy studying the day of or the day before because, all right, what you should do is this, all right? If you have Netflix, Amazon, all right, the night before, watch a movie, all right? I don't care how stupid it is, all right? The point is, it's got to take your mind off the subject because based on what I've seen and experience is that if someone goes crazy studying the morning of or the day before, they're going to start getting confused because they're trying to cram, all right? Don't do that. Did that answer the question? I think so. Yeah, I can chime in on some of like prep things that I recommend, especially if you have like a nervous stomach or you're just really anxious um, that morning of. I would try to, for the week prior to your exam, eat the same meal every single day so that you feel like you can trust yourself. Um, I would also make sure you do a dry run driving test to the test site. If you've never been to that Prometric Center and it's in a part of town you've never actually been to, just go once as a dry run, make sure you know exactly where it is, where you're going to park, if there's a parking meter or you have to find parking somewhere nearby that center, just go and do it once and just figure it out before the exam day because you do not want to be dealing with that and feel like you're going to be late to the exam. Um, Other things I've noticed, um, if you get to your exam early, sometimes they'll let you start taking the exam early. So just kind of know that going into it. Make sure you bring your notice to schedule with your access code. If you do not have that, you cannot test. So don't get halfway there and realize you don't have it and have to turn around and go back. Um, Make sure you have your two forms of identification with you. Um, Don't forget those. Um, If you spend too much time on that information screen, and you do not proceed within the allotted time, your test ends and you have to reschedule and repay. So make sure you follow the time limitations on your intro screen. Um, we've had a couple of candidates call us about that and say it was devastating because they prepared and they, and they couldn't test. Um, I'm trying to think. There, there's a handful of occasions now that it's summertime that this won't probably happen as much. Sometimes when there's weather, your test will be canceled and rescheduled. Um, just know that that's an option and they will use it if it's not safe for you to get to the test center. Try to consider that maybe it was just meant to be that you have a little extra time to study and try not to take it too seriously Um, and and leave enough room in your schedule if possible to have a second testing window. Try not to bunch them all up at the very end of your 18 months before things drop off because that added stress of having to get your state to extend a score because of a closed testing center, they may or may not do it. So just try not to get yourself into that situation uh, because it's really stressful. Um, I don't don't expect the people at Prometrics to be a best friend. They're not, they're not. People said, gee, they were unfriendly to us. Well, you know what? They're not getting paid to be friendly. (laughs) All right. It would be nice in a perfect world if they were. 
right? Okay. But you know, well, the, the other the other tip. Um, speaking of Prometric, um, on on test day, if you're someone who doesn't like those dry erase visa dry erase visa v pens, and they get kind of fuzzy, and you have that whiteboard where you have to write everything, there is an option to request an accommodation for a paper exam booklet where you can actually take your notes and you're going to have to send that request to NASBA prior to your exam so you can get a letter to take with you that says that you can use a paper and pencil for your exam. And I found a lot of people do find that valuable to them because of the frustration they have, especially lefties with that dry erase marker. It gets all over their hand. It's just frustrating. So um, that's something that is an option for you. Um, and I, if you need it, take advantage of that. And let me give you Phil's last-minute predictions for our financial accounting. Here we go, Rob. All right. Make sure you know the calculation of basic and diluted earnings per share. And what that means is, all right, <clears throat> make sure with the basic earnings per share, you know how to do weighted average number of shares, okay? Also, make sure you know the cash flow method, indirect, <clears throat> indirect. <laughs> Excuse me. Next thing, cash to accrual. Make sure you can take a trial balance and convert it from cash to accrual. And all that is is means, you know, cash doesn't record depreciation expense, all right? Doesn't write off amortization bond discount or premium. Doesn't record bad debt expense provision, all right? Make sure you can do a problem converting from cash to accrual. And the last one, business combinations. Make sure you know all the intercompany elimination and adjustments for a business combination, a consolidation. Okay? All right. So anyway, all right, that's some of the areas. But I want to make this offer. All right. If, once again, you would like to call me, even though you're not a student of ours, I'd be very happy to chat with you. All right. Don't feel like you're bothering me. All right. You're not bothering me. I wouldn't offer this. And my number, once again, 301. 874-4900, all right, extension five, and that's in Maryland, all right, and please call me, I mean, I, I want to help you, I really, you know, it may sound crazy, why do you want to help me, all right, well, that's what I am, you know, and that's what I believe in, so, anyway, thank you very much, all right, for watching and listening to this live podcast, all right, thank you for the questions that people sent in. And thank you, Megan. All right. Megan, actually, Megan doesn't tell you. I mean, Megan, you know, excellent student in accounting. She got a master's degree in accounting. All right. And as I said, she worked for KPMG and they just don't hire anybody. So anyway, Megan's terrific. She also doesn't mind helping students. And Rob, I want to thank Rob again. Rob was not here. All right. I wouldn't know what to do technologically. All right. So if you have any technological questions, call Rob. No charge. All right. Now, <laughs> no, just kidding. Just kidding. All right. So anyway, thank you, everyone. Take care. And if you're going into the exam, best of luck. And just remember, be focused and get a good night's sleep the night before if you can. Okay. Thanks again, everyone. Take care. And this is Phil Yeager from Yeager CPA Review. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to CPA Review and more with your host, Phil Yeager. If you have any questions or topics you'd like to hear about, we want to hear from you. Send your feedback live to us here at the studio at podcast at 
JaegerCPAReview.com. That email will also be in the podcast description for this episode. If you're in the market for a review course or simply want to know more about Jaeger CPA Review and what we have to offer, check out our website. Link will be in the description as well. Don't forget to use promo code PODCAST to take advantage of 15% off your purchase of the CPA Review course bundles on the Jaeger website. And if you haven't already, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast to keep hearing more of the great podcasts that CPA Review and more has to offer. Until next time, take care. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. So we didn't get to one of the questions in our Q&A webinar that I think is valuable. So here it is. The question is, how do I prepare for the written communication portion of the CPA exam? I feel like I'm an okay writer. What do, what do I do? Okay, there's a couple things that we recommend. One, there's a very neat software tool that I use personally and I think would be helpful for when you're practicing writing under a time constraint environment, and it's called Grammarly. It's a software tool that actually is more robust than Word when it comes to grammar. And it may actually identify areas of the English language that you may have missed as a child and you may not know that prepositions don't end sentences or things that are um, kind of higher level grammar rules that even as a native English speaker, and even if you're not a native English speaker, these are areas that it would identify in your actual writing. And it's, it's fairly inexpensive software. You can, there's actually a free version. It's called Grammarly, and I'll put the link to that software below. So that's something that the CPA exam actually is grading with a computerized tool for the written communication portion. So likelihood, this is one of the um, common tools in the industry. It would be a tool that's fairly similar to the one that Grammarly uses to identify grammar errors. So that's recommendation number one. And number two is when you get to these memos or whatever it is they're asking you to do for a written communication, be sure to look at the audience for it. Make sure that you write the type of document that they're asking for. If it's an email, it's a little bit more casual and you can have at the end, hey, reach out to me if you have any questions. Here's my phone number. I look forward to speaking with you. If it's a formal memo, you then would not include some of that casual um, rapport building conversation at the beginning and end of an email. So make sure you kind of know the audience that you're writing it to. If it's for the COO, it would be much higher level information. If it's for a subordinate, your staff person, and you are the senior, and you need to describe a topic to them that they've never seen before, you'd include a lot more uh, of the detailed information versus if it's someone in the executive function of your company where you'd be giving much more of a high level recommendation level and have some sort of closing paragraph that says, hey, uh, I would be happy to answer questions. Let's set up a time later this week on my schedule and we can go over this in greater detail. Those types of things are very appropriate to include on your written communication on the CPA exam. And the last thing I'll add to the list of three things that you maybe need to remember for these written communications is when you read the prompt and you have your scratch paper, write down all of the buzzwords that automatically jump into your head about that. So if you're, say you're on a written communication that has to do with COSO ERM, first thing you need to do, rather than just start typing, 
List all the buzzwords that you can remember about that topic on your scratch pad. And as you're writing this written communication, even if there's not that much time left, you'll have this list of things that you want to make sure that you include. And say you're running out of time and you really don't have enough time to get everything written in the best way possible, add a couple of sentences with those buzzwords at the end and that would help bolster your score in the event that you start to run out of time. Because we know that for a lot of folks, the writing portion does take a lot of time and you should really estimate about 15 minutes to write up these little responses. And so don't get too wordy and try to use English that you're comfortable with. Don't try to use words that you're not comfortable using or um, types of sentences. Um, don't add a semicolon if you don't know how to use a semicolon. So those are my tips for the written communication of the CPA exam. I hope that this has helped you. Good luck and have a great day. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.